0: We wanna welcome you to the Love First podcast. Thank you for joining us this evening. And if this is your first time and you're wondering what is going on here, our purpose is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love each other. And uh, we have a special guest uh, this evening that we're so excited uh, to share with you, Dr. Robert Robbie Luckett of Jackson State University, in jackson mississippi he is an associate professor of history and we are so thankful and uh dr luckett we're so thankful that you're with us and we're excited to uh, enjoy this uh, conversation with you if you are returning i want to say thank you for liking subscribing and sharing because this opportunity to catalyze these conversations honestly all it takes is for us to hear something uh, think about something, see something in a new way, and then that equips us to do a better job in those transformative conversations that we will inevitably find ourselves in. My first I know, my first I
1: know. Lord take control, Lord take control. my first in my soul,
0: So, uh, uh, I want our listeners to know that at your preference, we're going to call you Robbie instead of yeah. <laughs> Dr. it. But Robbie, thank you for joining us this evening. Absolutely. Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Oh, you too. Um, my wife and I are uh, big fans. The first time we heard you speak, we didn't know what to expect. And <laughs> we were both speechless in awe. Uh, I, I just want to say this to you. My wife came away and she's like, he is the best best speaker I've ever heard. And I was like, that's a big compliment. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it was great. But she is so happy that you have joined us as well. So what I thought would be good is for you to take some time and just introduce yourself uh, to our listeners. Let them know, uh, just tell us about growing up in Mississippi, your educational journey and how you came to the work that you're doing right now at Jackson state, as well as, um, the other things that you're involved with, Margaret Walker Center in COFO.
1: Sure, my my journey has been a little bit different than most white men of my demographic who grew up in Mississippi, that's for sure. Um, I uh, grew up in the Jackson area uh, and was lucky enough to have parents who came of age in the 60s and in and of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, A mother in particular who found herself in the mid 60s engaged in the movement. Wow. And would find her footing, particularly advocating in the areas of access to adequate health care, um, especially for mothers and babies and, and in the health care movement in Mississippi. Um, but she was embedded in all kinds of activist circles. Um, and I had a father who followed her um, and who himself made a career in public education as a school principal. And I grew up at a small public high school outside of Jackson Uh, Richland High School, but was raised with a consciousness that was unique for white heterosexual Christian men uh, in in my area. And um, with that, um, I left for college, um, knew that I was interested in civil rights and African American history, was actually a political science major at Yale. um, And had the great opportunity to go uh, to school there, which was a big change for Mississippi, but was formative in many ways. And mm. my earliest research, uh, kind of serious research as a scholar was around, um, at Yale around the life of Emmett Till and the impact of Emmett Till uh, on particularly his generation of children who are gonna come mm. grow up to be the activist leaders of the modern movement. Yes. And from there I began trying to figure out what I was actually going to do with my life um, after I graduated from college and ended up in a doctoral program in history um, at the University of Georgia, where I um, was focused on American history, but specifically the modern civil rights movement. And I do um subscribe to the notion um that there is a modern civil rights movement in america that is part of a a longer civil rights movement right that we've always had that goes back to the 1619 the first enslaved people arriving on the the shores of jamestown right um and in my in my work there at the university of georgia i um uh, was able to, to really grow in my, my thinking and my scholarship. And as I was finishing my PhD, I had the opportunity, surprisingly, to return home and was offered a job at Jackson State University, where I'm now tenured in the history department um, and teach civil rights and African American history. But the real blessing, honestly, uh, I mean, I, I, I love being a history professor. I love teaching and, and reading and writing history. Uh, that's what I was trained to do and why I went to grad school. But the real blessing at Jackson State has been my appointment, uh, in addition to being a faculty member, as director of the Margaret Walker Center, and now also of the COFO Civil Rights Education Center, and find myself embedded in uh, a historically black college, which is Jackson State, we're 92% African American, but running in the Margaret Walker Center, a Special Collections Archive and Museum founded by the great writer, novelist, poet, Margaret Walker. When she was uh, on the faculty at Jackson State, she founded us back in 1968. Mm. And then the COFO Center, which stands, COFO is an acronym, COFO, the Council of Federated Organizations. It was the uniquely Mississippi civil rights group that coordinated the efforts that would be better known as Freedom Summer in 1964. Um, the brainchild of the great Bob Moses, who's still alive and around and and, and with us today, um, and Kofo, the state headquarters, is now a museum and education center that I also run at Jackson State, and so really kind of unexpectedly, I found myself in the world of of public history and engaging okay. community in in really rewarding uh, and and significant ways and. I've been there now for the just started my 12th year at Jackson state and at the Margaret Walker center and at Kofo. and I'm lucky that I get to do what I get to do because being a civil rights historian and doing this work in Mississippi, especially at this moment in this time yes. um, has been pretty remarkable. And I get to meet lots of great people like yourself and your wife uh, and, and so many others who um, come to our doors, who come to Mississippi because they want to learn yes. about social justice and, and civil rights and, the movements that took place in Mississippi and the, the heroes and, and sheroes and the courage that was displayed in that work. So my journey w- was is a unique one, it's, like I said, for white men from Mississippi, uh, but I was blessed early on to be raised in a family that valued diversity, that, yes. that uh, valued um, social justice, that human rights, basic dignity of all people, and, and, and family who fought for that and introduced me to, the, to others. And so interestingly, I think coming back to Jackson State for this job, it uh, in many ways, I got the job because of that. Because I was not just a, a white man coming back applying for this job. I had street cred. I had people, people in the community knew who my parents were and said, oh, you're Jean's boy, right? They, it was um, uh, an acknowledgement that, that I had something to contribute and, and was relatively trusted, I suppose, because of that. And, and I don't take that for
0: granted. And it's, it's been a real blessing. You bet. And that's exciting to me. You were in, if I understand right, you were in New Haven at Yale for about six years. Is that that's right? right? That's right. Was that your undergrad and your master's there?
1: No, actually, I stayed for two years in New Haven and worked as a Yale admissions officer. I covered it. the southeastern United States, so I um, spent two years trying to figure out what I was going to do, deciding between law school and grad school, and ultimately decided um, I, I chose the 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 impoverished route of academia.
0: <laughs> but
1: I, but I think I'm much happier for it.
0: Amen. Hey, and then how did you end up at the University of Georgia? Uh, we're pretty excited that we're a part of your journey over here. So how yeah, did you end up and, at the University of Georgia? Um, it, when I was in,
1: in uh, undergraduate, one of my main um, mentors is an incredible historian named Glenda Gilmore. Mm. And um, she wrote a fabulous book called Gender and Jim Crow, and, okay. and a number of others, and just is a world-renowned scholar. And she encouraged me to begin thinking about graduate programs and University of Georgia was one of a handful of schools at the top of her list due to the faculty and the scholars who were there and so I started looking into these programs and I honestly if you want to study civil rights if you want to study southern history the best programs are in the south they 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 they, they are University of Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia even the University of Mississippi has a great southern studies program and so those were all on my list, and I mean, just to make it plain, the University of Georgia offered me more money than any other place for graduate school. So I made that decision. <laughs> and that matters, baby. <laughs> well, As I, I was it. choosing poverty, um, <laughs> the University of Georgia made it easy. But I, I had a fabulous experience in Athens. I had great scholars and a great group of um, a cohort of graduate students around me, and really found my footing there. And it's been. Um, a good eight years at the University yeah. of Georgia um, in both the master's and doctoral programs.
0: So Fantastic. Um, it was a great
1: experience.
0: So let's, let's pull ourselves down then into the Southeast United States. And specifically, one of the things that you talk about in regard to your home state of Mississippi is that we are a part of the United States as much as we are a part from the United States, right? So I don't think I, I don't think outside of Mississippi, people grasp the deep-seated historical relevance of this idea oh. that somehow Mississippi is like an aberration. Uh, 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 and we'll we'll get into this a little bit. But tell us what it means for you to emphasize that hey, Mississippi is part of the fifty. It's part of the big picture. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe give us a little of context on that. Well, sure, and as a good
1: historian, let me cite my source on that. I, that Really, that idea is inspired by one of my mentors at the University of Georgia, an incredible historian, Jim Cobb. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, Dr. Cobb wrote a, a fabulous book, probably the best known book about the Mississippi Delta called The Most Southern Place on Earth, mm-hmm. right? Which is a now a, a well-known um, euphemism for the Delta, um, the northwest part of Mississippi, where sharecropping in particular would take hold and where the majority of the population is African-American. And, um, and and his point about the Delta was he has this great line where it is it is as much a part of the world as it is a world apart. Wow. Um, and, his, and his point in making that is to help us understand that the Delta, that Mississippi is a creation of the, the capitalist um, American story and was produced and built as a part of America and to serve kind of the, the interest and in, in the power structure that is and was America. And so, and and as you know, when people come to visit, I, I, I hope that they leave and will take kind of a critical eye back home to them and say, you know, well, we can look in our own backyard and find some of these stories there as well, right? It's this notion in the in the scholarship and the historiography um, of the Southern exceptionalism. The, and the idea is that somehow the South is different than the rest of America. Mm. And if we can blame the South for being the bad part of America, it less, lets the rest of America off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and instead understanding that the South is not exceptional, that it is a product and is part and parcel And and honestly, if we go back to the founding of the nation, let us understand that our founding fathers, the the ones that we point to most readily, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, Benjamin Franklin, right, slaveholders, whose power was built upon the institution of slavery. And this nation was built and the Constitution was created to protect the institution of slavery. Yes. inherently, inherently violent, right, brutal system of power and control mm-hmm. and, and an economic system, right? And that has simply evolved over time. And so from the very founding of this nation, the South, and, and, and when we say the South, we got to be careful about what we mean, particularly white power in the South right. was was enshrined and, and protected. Yeah. And on on the backs of particularly African-Americans in the South, right? And by the time of the American Civil War, four million enslaved people. Yes. And that doesn't change very much. And uh, to Cobb's point about the Mississippi Delta, you know, the we think about slavery in Mississippi, the institutional slavery in Mississippi, the, the stronghold was in Southwest Mississippi near Natchez. It wasn't really in the Delta. The Delta only gets settled Post Civil War in the Reconstruction Era, as federal dollars flood into the South to rebuild the South after the Civil War, after the Civil War, and the Mississippi River is dammed, and and the 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 delta, which had been primarily swampland, is drained and is dried and is made. Thus, this great alluvial soil right is made farmable. And that is when the the institution of sharecropping and Jim Crow uh, develops in that region and in Mississippi. And so, again, a a, a national story um, of of our place in it. So that's a long answer to that question. Um, But Mississippi is America. And it is a function of how America has always operated. And that hasn't changed to this day.
0: Yes. And I think that's powerful because one of the things we recognize is, nearly every uh, famous civil rights name that we, with whom we would be familiar with, their paths cross Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. They are embedded in it. You know, just recently, um, uh, we have lost uh, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian sure. and Emma Sanders, all of whom, all of whom participated in Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi, right. Uh, if, I, if I remember right, I think John Lewis, if I remember right, spent 37 days in jail or in prison. Um, Emma Sanders, if I understand right, she is from Mississippi. She passed away in Mississippi. And then just recently, as I uh, was sharing with you earlier, I found out that our mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, that her aunt, Ruby Dora Smith Robinson, was also an activist in Jackson who was also jailed there nearly a 100 days. And all of them there participating in this movement, not just to advance people of color, but to somehow overcome the massive resistance Mm -hmm. to the advancement of people of color. Can you walk us through a little bit about How Mississippi, uh, the the movement uh, in Mississippi kind of informs the bigger picture of civil rights and uh, the justice that we so deeply crave in this nation.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, again, let's understand that there's been a long history of a civil rights movement in this nation. And specifically in Mississippi, which is my, my area of expertise and what I study. And I think what we really should understand if we back it up, historically speaking, to the end of the American Civil War, let's know that Mississippi had a majority black population, Mm -hmm. right? Um, One of two states that was majority African American and Mississippi would remain majority African American until World War II, when the Great Migration is gonna shift that. But to this day, percentage wise, Mississippi is still 37% African American, the largest percentage of any state in the nation as diverse as any state in the nation. And that plays a key role in this entire story because those people upon emancipation in 1865 with the 13th Amendment and the one caveat to that being that we can still enslave people as punishment for a crime, which I would argue we still do uh, in this nation. um, Those people immediately begin exploding the mythology around slavery that somehow being enslaved was the proper place for people of African descent that the only thing they could aspire to was being slaves. Mm. And they begin immediately building communities, um, homes, families, reuniting families that have been torn apart by slavery, building farms, building fraternal organizations, churches, and schools. They write one of the most progressive political documents in American history with the Mississippi constitution of 1868, that among other things, and I do have a, a real kind of scholarly interest and personal interest in public history in Mississippi, Among other things, it called for free public education for all children between the ages of five and 21 and higher grades as soon as possible thereafter. For all children, not a segregated education. Free public education for what we would consider today pre-K through college. And, um, you know, you think think about that as a revolutionary notion, right? In 1868, we're going to educate everybody. And it said, there was a preamble to that clause that said, We're doing this because having an educated citizenry is essential for the health of a republic. Mm. Like how more noble can that be? It's These people are building a society that had been completely denied to them, right? In in a culture. um, And they are doing these remarkable things. They're running for office, right? We have a black US congressman, um, John R. Lynch. We have two black United States senators, which Hiram Rebels and Blanche K. Bruce. This is the 150th anniversary of the election of Hiram Rebels to the United States Senate. Of our black US senators in American history, Barack Obama, when he was elected to the US Senate, he's the fifth black US senator in American history. We had two from Mississippi before that, right? So so this is just setting a little bit of the historical context for this story. Understanding that these people were claiming their freedom. You know, we we assume that uh, often, and I say we, I'm going to use this kind of we as meaning kind of in the broad American consciousness, that the 13th Amendment uh, emancipated people and that Abraham Lincoln was somehow responsible for that. There were 50,000 black U.S. colored troops from Mississippi, all of whom were former slaves. 50,000 black U.S. colored troops fighting they weren't freed they were fighting for their own freedom right and demanding it Um, and these are the people right who are in Mississippi who are building this society there's a number of things that are going to conspire to undermine their power including essentially the invention of Jim Crow in Mississippi and Jim Crow has to become If white people are going to reassert or redeem their power, this era post-Reconstruction is known as the era of redemption. If they're going to do that, if they're going, if white folks are going to reclaim the power they had known in slavery, they are going to have to institute a totalitarian regime and system of power. And they are able to do that in Mississippi. And they will- submerge
0: in the late 1870s?
1: Yeah, it's really, it's going to start in the late 1870s. Um, we often point to the Compromise of 1877 as being a turning point. There's a number of things that's going to happen in particular. Andrew Johnson, actually, when he's president, one of the things Andrew Johnson is going to do after the Civil War, he's going to pardon 13,000 Confederate veterans. Mm. These, this is the Confederate leadership. These are the large plantation owners. These are the people who were on the run because they were guilty of treason and subject to being hanged after the Civil War. He pardons them. And then he forces the Freedmen's Bureau to give them their land back. They had all fled the land. And who had taken up the land? The former enslaved people who had been forced to work it against their wills. All those enslaved people are dispersed. That's gonna to lead to the rise of the, the system of sharecropping yes. as an economic system in the South, right? The the Mississippi Constitution of 1868 importantly is going to be thrown out in 1890, and these white redeemers are going to invent in Mississippi the system of disfranchisement that will be well known throughout Jim Crow, right? Um, Poll taxes, literacy tests, um, residency requirements. Uh, In Mississippi, the literacy test was called the understanding clause, you had to understand a section of the state constitution to the satisfaction of a voting registrar. All of these things are invented in Mississippi as a means particularly of of undermining the 15th amendment, which had been seen as giving African-Americans the right to vote. But the 15th amendment had, much like the 13th amendment has a a loophole in it, as we can still enslave people as punishment of a crime. So does the 15th amendment. And the fact that the 15th amendment doesn't actually give anybody the right to vote. Instead it says, the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. If you can't deny it or abridge it based on race, you can deny or abridge it in other ways, poll taxes, literacy tests, and all of that will be upheld. And all of these things will come together to create this system of Jim Crow power, economic power, political power, social power. Um, We think about segregation and the institution of segregation, right? Separate but equal. Everybody knew separate was not equal and was never going to be Mm -hmm. equal. There was nothing you could do about it to change the law. You had no political power. Um, and this, it's a foothold in Mississippi where African Americans remain the majority of the population. And to top it all off, you get lynching and yes. the, the system of lynching, right? And the Equal Justice Initiative, I, I, will, I will always give them credit for the yeoman's work they've done around researching lynchings and recognizing that Mississippi led the nation in the total number of known lynchings. And the word known is the key word here, right? You know that there were hundreds or thousands of people who just disappeared who we don't know. Yes. And the idea that between eighteen seventy-seven and nineteen fifty, six hundred and fifty-four known lynchings have been identified by the Equal Justice Initiative. In Mississippi. In Mississippi alone. That's a known lynching every six weeks for 73 years, where we know who was killed, we know who killed them, and we know they got away with it. Yes. Right. Yes. That that is a system of total power being imposed on the majority of the population in Mississippi. Seems a weird way to kind of set up this earlier question that you asked about civil rights activism and why so much of it is embedded in Mississippi. But you understand that you had a people, a population in Mississippi, an African American population that was the majority of the population that really immediately out of enslavement is doing these remarkable things. And what it took to reassert white hegemony over them was a system of terror, yeah. a totalitarian regime that controlled all aspects of power and would have total power for the better part of a 100 years. And the people who continue to re- resist that are superheroes. <laughs> I mean, my, perhaps my favorite American of all time is Ida B. Wells Barnett, a yeah. Mississippian right? and the work she did. And at the time that she was doing it, it is a miracle that that woman lived to adulthood, the courage yes. that she showed. Right. And so there was a, a, a history of this activism and there was a, a need for people who were willing to risk their lives yes. and not just their lives. They knew they were risking the lives of their families. Yes. Right. Um, yes. And so there is, uh, there are examples, there are leaders, leaders, that others would look to, right? So Ida B. Wells Barnett um, in Mississippi, Medgar Evers, right? Mm-hmm. Fannie Lou Hamer yes. there. And and so it, it builds over a long period of time where you have um, intense oppression and, and a system of, of total white supremacist power. And yet people who are still living there who are resisting that power. Yes. They set the examples that John Lewis was looking towards when he comes to Mississippi in 1961 as a freedom writer. Same thing with C.T. C. Vivian. Emma Sanders as a delegate for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. So, so many others yes. um, look to them. So that I think that, that that's why Mississippi is kind of the epicenter of all this. And also maybe why Mississippi is often pointed to as exceptional in this story. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, but at the same time, all of these impulses, right, the the displacement of uh, freed people was due to the President of the United States, Andrew Johnson, pardoning 13,000 Confederate veterans who were all traitors, who were all guilty of treason and subject to being hanged. Yes. So that was a federal action by the President of the United States, who happened to be from Tennessee, right? <laughs> so um, Mississippi may have been an epicenter of so much of that for good reason, but it was a reflection of everything else that was going on in America.
0: Yes. And if we think about combining some of these things you've, you've brought out, so you have federal action. Um, you have a, a, a way of codifying um, the resurgence of unequal white power through white supremacy. And uh, a couple things you've mentioned that I think are, are just profound is you actually cut the this huge part of the population out of the civil process of voting.
1: That's right. You and, know, with the Mississippi Constitution of 1890, it was estimated there's been some good research around this that roughly 86% of eligible black voters were registered to vote in 1890 in Mississippi. That would have been black men over the age of 21 because that's who could vote at the time Men really? the age of 21. So roughly 86% voter registration rate by 1910 years later, it's 4%. Yes. And that represents the majority of the population in the state of Mississippi. Yes, the significant yes. majority of the population of the state of Mississippi and would be for the next 50 years. By the time you get to Freedom Summer in 1964, African-Americans are a little bit less than half the population. But the voter registration rate is only
0: 6.7 percent. It's not it's marginally increased since 1890. And right. When we think about that, I think something that oftentimes we forget uh, as we're looking, you know, looking back into this is. You've got Medgar Evers, you've got James Meredith. What, their, their largest concerns were voting rights Absolutely. because of how that was unfolding. I read one statistic that during that time, those that were seeking to register African-American voters in Amit County, out of 5,500 uh, black citizens, there was a, maybe one that was registered to vote or a few that were registered to vote. The question was why, and we forget that there is this violent suppression as well as an illegal legal uh, suppression of voting rights. So this, this is huge. So something I thought would be helpful would be this. I often hear people trying to navigate the phrase, the phrase, systemic racism and so people are like well is that really a thing is systemic racism real and we hear people say it's not real so on and so forth um but when you look at the history when you look at the structures that were put in place i think we might ask ourselves what is a system answer that question first and then see if what was going on in order to suppress people of color and disenfranchise them from the economic and judicial processes of the country and of the state of Mississippi and other states, obviously, it would appear from the outside systemic. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. And I I think as a historian, if we look at these things historically, we see how that system was created. And I I would specifically define the system as white supremacy. Um, and, And very clearly, so all the way back to the beginning of time, And I mean, again, just go back to how the system of slavery is is codified and how it's really protected by the United States Constitution and how the power of white southerners Mm. is protected in the United States Constitution and the fact that it took an American Civil War to end the institution of slavery Mm. and that if we look at the Mississippi Articles of Secession in this great debate, because I don't really think it's a debate um, why I would put air quotes around it, that somehow the Civil War was about something other than slavery. If you go to Mississippi's Articles of Secession, they say very clearly we're seceding from the union because our interests are inherently tied to the institution of slavery. And they use the term slavery no less than eight, nine, ten times in the declaration of of secession. and and understand that the that the system of power of white supremacy, and that it, other than this one blip, this one brief moment during Reconstruction, where in Mississippi specifically, Black Americans are building something that could have been very different. It's just it, we could have had a, a very different system of power. Um, instead, what gets um, thanks to help again from the American government, from the federal government, what gets re-implemented is the system of jim Crow power. Yes. and so and 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 if we understand we can we can trace that all the way to today pretty easily. Um, and you know we look at something as easy as as simple as this, insti- not really simple, but the institution of, of public education and how that history plays out. Well, I mentioned the constitution of eighteen sixty eight. The Constitution of 1890 changed the education provision in one, well, two two ways. One, it took out that preamble about having an educated citizenry being essential for the health of the republic. That's gone. So they take that out. So there, there's clearly no reason, no good reason in the Constitution of 1890 to have public education. And the second change they make is that they call for separate schools. They call for a segregated education. They call specifically for schools for white and what they then called colored children right in Mississippi and that system of segregated education if we look at the history to today has been pretty sustainable for the last 150 years and and inadequate and unjust (laughs) and um and there's there's of course a longer story and a longer history here but if you just follow that trail you see where that system of power is embedded Mm -hmm. and leads us to today to another one of these terms that I think we get um, caught up in in the debates, to, to trying to understand as white Americans, and I think it's important that we do understand, and that, that's white privilege, right, what it means. And 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 really, I, for one, don't really ascribe to the notion of white privilege, because I think, as one of my friends and, and someone that I look up to, a wonderful writer from Mississippi named Kiese Lehman says in his fabulous memoir, Heavy, um, it says yeah. that white privilege is Basically, too innocuous of a term because what white privilege is is white supremacy at the at the heart of it, right? Um, but if we understand that 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 system has been built in very specific ways to advantage some groups over others, and if we're willing to step back individually and say perhaps some of our anecdotal experiences don't represent a system, because that's always the excuse, I think white people want to give as well. I didn't have those advantages. Well, so, you know, or, or I don't want to recognize that what advantages I had some in some ways were more than what others had. Right? Um, and trying to break down that notion of insecurity and the notion that that somehow if you say I was advantaged, I'm being attacked. Well, let's really break it down. Let's really look at the system. Let's really look at what people face, you know, what if we really understand and, and step in the shoes of our black brothers and sisters and say, what did the Confederate flag mean <laughs> to them in Mississippi? What, when they saw it, what did they feel? And can we step back and say, maybe it didn't make us feel that way, but can we understand why they felt a certain way? Yes. Um, and then we can, can kind of attack those notions and, and begin to slowly wrap our minds around systemic racism, white privilege and, and, All these things that have been built into American society and into Southern society.
0: All right. So you brought it up. You brought up the flag. You are born and raised Mississippian. And here a few weeks ago, your legislature voted to uh, permanently retire the Mississippi flag. So how do you feel about that?
1: Good. remarkable moment what an 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 incredible moment of just kind of jubilation and celebration for people who've worked so hard for this and there's so many people who never got a chance to actually be here for that moment right who worked and fought for these kinds of changes you know the mississippi flag and that that confederate battle emblem um actually dates to 1894 when the mississippi legislature adopted it um It was adopted specifically in this context of Jim Crow and the Mississippi constitution of 1890. It was um, an homage to the old South and the kind of the white supremacist mythology at the time. It had never flown over Mississippi before. It actually is the battle flag of the army of Northern Virginia. Um, And so interestingly, when it was adopted by the legislature in 1894, it wasn't put to the people for a vote right? It wasn't put to the people for a referendum. And of course, the majority of the people at the time were African-American and they couldn't vote anyways. But one of the arguments recently about the legislature not doing it was you should put it to a vote. You should let it be a referendum. Well, it was good enough for the legislature to do it in 1894. I don't know why the legislature didn't have power uh, to, to change it now, Yes, um, but it really was, um, a a unique moment in time that we arrived at in Mississippi that made this happen. And of course, it's the context, the context of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movements. It was pressure, certainly from activists and and generations upon generation of pressure of activists that are finally going to force corporations to step up. Mm-hmm. I think importantly, in the for those of us in the South, we know the NCAA and the Southeastern Conference to step up and say that that athletic championships will not be held in Mississippi anymore. Um, and um, the Southern Baptist Convention to step up and issue a statement saying this is wrong and it's time for the flag to change. All of these forces coming together um, at this uh, specific moment. Uh, and it was it was really up in there until the last, um, really the last minute and the last vote was counted. When you consider due to the timing in the legislature it was at the very end of the legislative session, yes. it required um, a, 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 the suspension of the rules to be adopted. And the suspension of the rules was really the key vote because that required two thirds of both houses to agree to, wow. sus- to take on the vote, which meant that, you had to you had to have a veto-proof <laughs> supermajority in both houses to say we want to take on this flag bill, yeah. and it was those votes when those votes happened. That was when people really celebrated because after that, the the legislation itself was a simple majority, and you had the two thirds um, majority already in hand. But. Wow, what a remarkable moment and what a long time coming. And we now currently have the distinction of being the only state in the nation without a flag.
0: <laughs> well, but let's think, right now. let's think about some things that you've just shared and let's unpack them for a few moments here as we... Uh, uh, let me ask you a quick question. We're going to come to the close of this conversation. Are you good for a second one? Can we? Absolutely. We'll be two of them? All right. So let's let's kind of bring this one to a close. So there's a couple of things I want us to think about. You mentioned that there's pressure from businesses, international business doing business in Mississippi, national business doing business in Mississippi, uh, from sports. And, man, when you mentioned the SEC and especially SEC football, and the decision for the SEC to make that decision. And then if we look back at uh, Carolyn Rene DuPont's book, Mississippi Praying, and the role of evangelical religion opposing black advancement, opposing those things, and upholding white supremacy, for the Southern Baptist Convention to come back around in this moment and uh, take a stand is very important. But that presupposes something. That presupposes that symbols have meaning. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? You're a history professor. Can you talk about the role of symbols? And, and can, can we tuck in one kind of controversial point here? Sure. People often say in their argument against the removal of uh, monuments and so on, that we need those monuments to teach history but you are a history professor. So I'd like to hear your perspective on the role of symbols. And as we kind of close out, the role of symbols and the role of monuments in some imagination of how we pass on history.
1: Well, let's just be clear. Monuments into and of themselves don't teach anything, right? It's the people who interpret them. And thus, yes, they do have meaning. Um, And really, their meaning is a function of the people who erect them and who adopt them, right? Let's go to the Mississippi flag of 1894 and that Confederate battle emblem. It was adopted on purpose as a symbol of the white supremacist Jim Crow power structure that was being, that was being created. And that was intentional. And you can go look at the debate at the time in the state legislature and Mm -hmm. look at the remarks being made about its erection and its adoption as the state flag. It is, it's in, infused with white supremacy. Yes. Same thing with statues and monuments. They reflect the values of the people who are erecting them. Yes. And most of our Confederate monuments throughout the country, not just the South, because there are Confederate memorials, interestingly, all over the nation, yes. um, are created, most of them in the early 20th century, in the same period of time, right? By people who are trying to bring some kind of glory to this old mythology around what the South stood for um, and, and what they come to represent is this somehow noble dream that had been the, the, the American South during the institution of slavery. And, and that is an inf- offensive interpretation of history. It, yes. it just is, as a historian, that is, is not what the South was about, what the, what the old South was about. It was about the institution of slavery and white power and white supremacy. Yes. And those monuments represented those moments. And monuments and memorials change and they change over time to reflect the values of the societies that they represent. And there are times when monuments have to come down yep. and they have to be moved and they have to be changed and 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 they do come to represent our values now. Yes. And if you're holding on to those old values, you don't like to see it come down, uh-huh. right? If you're holding on to this mythology, somehow you're you're offended that it's being changed. I don't hear, you know, one of the big arguments is that well, why are we destroying these things and why don't we I don't hear anybody arguing that we destroy them. Yeah, let's keep them and let's talk about the symbols uh-huh. Um, that they are and what the symbols are that they represent. Let's just put them in different places. <laughs> you know, let, yeah. Let's put some in museums. Let's put them in a cemetery, right? Let's um, let's remove them though. And and frankly, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if some of them were destroyed. I actually would be okay with that. Yeah. Um, but um, but let's do contextualize them with um, a history that is intentional about talking about what, about what they were about and teaching about what they're about. And and that's what it is important, right, that we have we have people educated about these meanings and mm-hmm. and about what they represent and what they represented when they were erected.
0: See, I think I think what you've just done just for me and I know you've done for our listeners is unless someone is from Mississippi and really has a or or a historian that has a deep understanding I would imagine that many people did not know that that new flag came on in 1894, following the you know the uh, uh, reconstituting of the government in 1890. Right. But, you know, I, I would imagine a lot of people are unfamiliar with that history. And then it kind of does this little paradigm shift where it's like, oh, oh wait a minute. So that flag wasn't always there. Never.
1: Uh, Never in 1894.
0: I remember um, reading the book, Baptized in Blood, um, and it was a realization for the first time for me, an awakening of the incredible intentionality of crafting a narrative around these uh, statues, these uh, uh, symbols around the flag, crafting a narrative that was deeply uh, religious-centered, and you being a person of faith, I've heard you speak about Mississippi immersed as a a, a state of faith, then it seems to me that it would be appropriate for us to discuss the challenge we face when a person of faith discovers that the values that they've held on to and the symbols they've defended are inconsistent with the faith. That they hold, and I think we ought to just leave our listeners there and dive into that one of conversation uh, number two. Uh, Sounds Bobby, good, Is there anything that you'd kind of like to close us out with this evening?
1: Well, I, I would just say it is in talking about this kind of this second conversation to have. We all, especially white Americans, we do have to do some soul searching, and we have to grapple with these things. And let's understand that. Just because it is our heritage doesn't mean that that it has to be something we're proud of. It doesn't mean that it has to be something that we defend all the time. We can't control who the people were who came before us. Mm-hmm. We don't have control over that, but we can grapple with these things with some honesty and with some sincere reflection
0: mm-hmm.
1: that that challenges us.
0: Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you. We're excited that you're going to join us again next week. And so I want to say to all of you that have joined us this evening, thank you so much. I'd ask you to go online. Uh, You can search Dr. Robert Luckett uh, from uh, Jackson State University. Uh, He wrote a tremendous op ed piece that was published in the New York Times. Uh, earlier this year, and we're going to get into that in uh, next week's uh, set of discussion questions that we didn't get to uh, this week. So, thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast this evening. Please remember to like and subscribe and share, and we'll see you next time.